Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Thank you, Abby. Um, it's great to be with you here this evening. Um, if you don't know who I am, I'm, I'm aware that I don't recognise every name in, in this, this Zoom room. My name's Andy. Um, along with my wife, Claire, um, I, I lead the morning service here at CCM Fallowfield. Um, but it is a pleasure to be here with you in the evening. Um, in just a second, Anusha's going to share some images to the screen to get us started. Um, because in my opinion, one of the greatest books ever written is actually a children's book and it's called We're Going on a Bear Hunt by Michael Rosen. Okay, let's see if the image appears on the screen. If you're not familiar with this iconic work of literature, well, it's about a family who decides to go, guess, guess what, on a bear hunt. But as they search for their bear, they encounter several obstacles, including, but not limited to, long wavy grass, a deep cold river, thick oozy mud, a big dark forest, and even a swirling, whirling snowstorm, leading you to wonder where on earth in the world they live. But each time they encounter an obstacle, they say the same thing. Maybe you know this little refrain. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no, we've got to go through it. Now this might be one of my favorite childhood reads, but there's one thing which really bothers me about this story. And it is how woefully unprepared this family are for their bear hunt. Not only do they have nothing with them which will help them to catch a bear or defend themselves against a bear when they find one, they also have nothing to help them traverse the obstacles on the way. As you can see clearly in this picture of them crossing a river with their shoes held in their hand. Goodness knows what they did when they got to the snowstorm or wet from the river. Anyway, rant over. If, uh, if they knew that they were going to be going on a bear hunt, someone should have encouraged them to watch some episodes of Bear Grylls first. You know, at least then they'd be prepared. You know, the second letter of Paul to Timothy is about preparation. It's Paul, who is the author of 13 letters in the New Testament, who is at this point in prison and on death's door. And what Paul is doing with this letter is he's preparing Timothy, his disciple and spiritual son, to take Paul's place in preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to as many people as possible. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul encouraged Timothy to be prepared for this new role by fanning into flame the gift of God, having confidence in the Holy Spirit, the spirit who doesn't make us fearful but makes us bold. Well, then next, we uh, heard over the last uh, last week that Paul encouraged Timothy to prepare by being rooted in the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ's salvation for anyone who believes in him. And Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of this message, even the message that's put Paul behind bars. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the passage we're going to read today, Paul prepares Timothy to suffer for the gospel. You see, Paul doesn't want Timothy to be under any impression that what he's getting himself into is going to be a walk in the park. He doesn't want Timothy to be unprepared like that family and we're going on a bear hunt. So he invites Timothy to join him in suffering for the gospel, reminding him that in Jesus there is eternal reward. 
Well, we're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 this evening, but I'm just going to start by reading verses 1 to 7. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Well, we'll pause there for now to have a look at the first thing that Paul is urging Timothy to do to prepare himself for this gospel ministry that's to come. First thing Paul's encouraging Timothy to do is to consider the cost of preaching the gospel. Paul's urging Timothy not only to become a gospel preacher himself, but also to put together a team of people to do it with him. That's in verse two. Timothy had been part of Paul's team and now Paul's telling him to make one of his own. But then in verse three, Paul invites Timothy to join him in suffering before giving him three real life illustrations to think about and apply. But before we get to those, can we just be honest for a second? Inviting somebody to join you in suffering is quite weird. It's quite a strange thing to do. And I think we all know somebody probably who, who likes to recommend things that they've enjoyed to other people, right? And I am one of these people. For Christmas, I was given an AeroPress by my wife, Claire, which is a particular way of making coffee. And if you haven't heard me talk about it yet, well, you're in for a treat when you do listen to me talk about it. Um, but th this way of making coffee, it produces smooth, delicious coffee, and I highly recommend it. But if it produced like rancid coffee full of grounds, then I certainly wouldn't. But people tend to recommend good experiences, don't they? Not bad ones. Now, on paper, Paul's gospel ministry wasn't an experience that a lot of people would recommend. Because of his message about Jesus, because of how passionately Paul preached it, and because of how successful it became, Paul was flogged by the Jewish authorities, beaten with sticks by the Roman authorities, imprisoned and chained to Roman soldiers, and even once stoned so severely that everyone thought he was dead. And if these human atrocities committed against him weren't enough, then everywhere he traveled, he faced the worst of what nature had to offer as well. When he traveled by sea, the ships he traveled in got smashed up on the rocks, leaving him clinging to pieces of wreckage to stay alive. And he constantly battled some kind of illness, which caused him so much pain, he referred to it as a thorn in his flesh. You probably know the phrase, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And after, after Paul recounts all of those things that have happened to him in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, you'd expect him to say that. And yet instead, Paul recommends this way of life to those who follow Jesus. And here we find him recommending this way of life to Timothy, his beloved Timothy, whom he views as a spiritual son. Now, why would Paul do this? Well, there can only be one explanation, can't there? There must be something about this way of life which makes all the pain and the suffering worthwhile. And there is. 
because preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ leads to people's eternities being changed completely. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. In other words, to everyone in my world, it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Preaching the gospel is an incredibly rewarding way of life, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that. The first thing Paul wants Timothy to get is that there is a great cost to being a gospel preacher, to being someone who listens to and obeys the command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, as it says at the end of Matthew's gospel. So what what does Paul do to kind of help Timothy grasp this? Well, he gives him three real life illustrations, three real life professions and jobs that Timothy would have been familiar with them, all of which have a cost associated with them. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Let's go back to the passage. In verses three to four, Paul says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Now, uh, Paul and Timothy lived in the Roman Empire and soldiers performed a lot of roles in the Roman Empire. Not only were they Rome's fighting force in their military campaigns, their battles and their conquests, but they also served as palace guards, prison wardens and policemen. Soldier was quite a, a broad job description. Their job would essentially be to do what they were told by their commanders, obey orders and stay focused on the task at hand. But because of their versatility and because soldiers were everywhere in the empire, there were all sorts of civilian matters which might distract them or draw their attention that they might be tempted to get involved with. For example, a dispute between two families which need somebody to sort it out or a brawl in a tavern or sometimes soldiers might even be offered bribes to intervene in certain matters or to do the opposite, to turn a blind eye. But Paul is really clear here that a good soldier isn't concerned about pleasing civilians. The soldier is concerned about pleasing their commanding officer. And the same is true in the military today. Paul is challenging Timothy to think, who do you want to please the most? Is it everyone or is it Jesus? In other words, are you prepared to sacrifice a bit of popularity for obedience to Jesus. I wonder how many of us would be willing to admit that sometimes we try a little bit too hard to please everybody. Being a people pleaser can be exhausting, can't it? Because it's impossible to please everybody in your life. And yet we try sometimes and exhaust ourselves. Here, Paul is calling us as Christians to seek primarily to please Christ, our commanding officer, to do what he has asked us to do, to bring the good news to everyone we meet, knowing that that obedience will bring compassion within us for those around us, will lead us to walk humbly with our God, to love mercy and to do justly, to share the gospel with gentleness and compassion, but not with compromise. There is a cost to being a follower of Jesus. And in talking about soldiers, Paul is saying it might be popularity with the masses. He goes on in verse five to say, similarly, anyone who tries to compete as an athlete 
does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. A little bit more context for you. During the 98th Olympic Games in 388 BC, that's right, the Olympics are very, very old, a boxer named Eupolis of Thessaly bribed three of his opponents to let him win. So he was discovered and all four athletes were disqualified and heavily fined. And the reason that we know about this today is that six bronze statues of Zeus were erected afterwards with inscriptions warning other athletes to keep to the rules or else. Well, maybe Paul and Timothy knew about this event that had happened sort of 400 years before their lives. Or maybe they knew about similar stories from the Olympics and other sporting events across the empire. But it was clearly considered a good characteristic in an athlete to keep to the rules in athletic competition. And very little has changed in that sense with athletes today. But I think it's interesting that Paul would highlight this particular characteristic in athletes because he's talking about cost. And the first cost of being an athlete that most of us would think of is quite simply the hours and hours of grueling training. Long distance runner Mo Farah once said that at the peak of his training, he'd run 18 miles per day. Boxer Anthony Joshua said that he used to train 13 and a half hours Monday to Friday, only having a break at the weekend if he had, if he didn't have a fight. I actually used to, years ago, be a competitive swimmer. I'm very tall and very sort of, my limbs are very long and so it helps. But I used to be a competitive swimmer and one of my coaches had been uh, Olympic silver medalist Rebecca Adlington's coach years before. And he always used to say that what set her apart from the crowd was that every exercise she was given in training, she'd do an extra two lengths of the pool every single time. No matter what exercise was prescribed, two extra lengths. You see, that is the mark of a serious athlete. But let me tell you that it is always, there is always the temptation to cut corners. And all of us know what that's like whenever we try to get into an exercise regime. There's always a temptation to just be a little bit lazy. This used to be me all over when I was a a competitive swimmer. Whatever exercise our coach gave us, I'd always do a little bit less and try to get away with it. And that's why I'm no longer a competitive swimmer. I was always looking to cut corners. And we've seen this in professional uh, athletes as well, haven't we? We've seen how many athletes give in to that temptation to take performance enhancing drugs and cheat or cheat in other ways. And it's generally the end of their career when they're found out. Paul is commending the character of an athlete who doesn't cut corners, but is willing to put in the hard work. Because the job he's handing over to Timothy The role that actually every one of us gets to play as Christians today, sharing the gospel with people, whether it be the thousands or the ones and twos, is hard work. Paul wants Timothy to understand that. But there is always a temptation to to give up or to cut corners. I wonder if you've ever had an opportunity to have a really good gospel conversation with a friend and then you've bottled it. I know that I have, or or maybe uh, you haven't bottled it completely, but you've decided that instead of talking to them about Jesus, you'll buy them a book or recommend a worship song for them to listen to. I know I've done that loads of times. 
Perhaps if you're somebody with a little bit of a platform like me who gets to speak to lots of people in one go, you might find it quite easy to hide behind that platform, preaching boldly about Jesus Christ from here, whether it's from a, you know, a, a pulpit uh, or a pulpit or a Zoom pulpit, but being much more timid in my conversations with friends and family. Actually, it's easy to give up, isn't it? And yet Paul is emphasizing here, there is no substitute for telling someone the true gospel of Jesus. The gospel which says that every one of us without Jesus is deserving of punishment and death and eternity in hell because of our sinful rebellion against God. But gospel means good news. And that good news is that simply by believing in him by faith, because of all that Jesus has done in dying for us on the cross, we can be forgiven of our sin, our punishment already taken by Jesus and can receive the gift of eternal life. A good athlete, Paul says, knows the value of hard work and resists that temptation to cut corners or give up. Part of the cost of obeying Jesus is being willing to do the hard work of telling people the gospel as it is, the explicit gospel, knowing that they might respond negatively or it might completely transform their life. In verse six, Paul goes on with his third illustration to say the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. It's important to note here that Paul doesn't just talk generally about farmers, but hardworking farmers. I've met a few farmers. I haven't ever met a farmer that isn't hardworking. I think it's part of the job description. But although modern farming methods have come on a long way since biblical times, the truth is still that a hardworking farmer will be someone who gets up at the crack of dawn and works until way beyond when it's dark to keep their farmer ticking over. A farmer will also have to have strong character and strong kind of a uh, bit of being able to, to weather uh, all of the changes in the seasons, enduring poor yields from crops sometimes, issues with pests, and diseases, all of these things which can be devastating on a farm. And Paul says quite rightly, I think that a hardworking farmer should get first pick of the produce once their work is done. But there's another slightly more veiled reason here that Paul mentions farmers when he's encouraging Timothy to think about the cost of preaching the gospel. Think about this for a second. How many famous athletes can you name? Probably loads, right? How many famous soldiers can you name? Well, probably fewer, but maybe one or two. Ant Middleton from SAS Who Dares Wins, for example, famous soldier. But how many famous farmers can you name? Even if you have the most incredible niche knowledge of famous farmers, it's still probably a small number. Because farming is and has always been an underappreciated job, which requires incredible hard work, but gets very little recognition in return. And yet we always need farmers. They are part of the structure of society. They keep us alive by feeding us. Paul is asking Timothy, are you willing to go unrecognized for your hard work in sharing the gospel? At least unrecognized by the people around you. Paul certainly was. Whether it's popularity or comfort, or material gain, or recognition, or simply hard, grueling work, there is a cost to being a follower of Jesus devoted to sharing the gospel. And Paul wants Timothy to understand this, which is why he says in verse seven, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. 
And then Paul goes on in the next six verses or so to explain that it's important to know the cost of following Jesus and sharing the gospel, but consider also the reward of following Jesus. Paul urges Timothy to join him in suffering, tells him about the cost of his ministry, but it can't always be bad news, right? It can't all be bad news. Surely there is something which makes this way of life worthwhile. Well, each of those professions Paul named has a cost, but is also associated with a great reward. The reward of a farmer, Paul mentions, a farmer can take first pick of the crops, the yield of their hard work, and then they sell the rest. An athlete might receive a medal in the modern day or in Paul and Timothy's day, a wreath made out of leaves. I'd prefer a medal personally, but that's just me. A Roman soldier who served diligently might be given a plot of land on their retirement, which they could use as they pleased. We know about the cost of gospel ministry, but what about the reward? Well, let's read on in 2 Timothy 2 verses 8 to 10. It says this, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Well, there are two sides of the reward of following Jesus, which Paul mentions. And the first we just read is the reward of knowing that people might come to faith because of the gospel. Paul says in verse 10, therefore I endure everything, you know, imprisonments and beatings and stonings and shipwrecks for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. When Paul talks about the elect, he's simply pointing out God's role in bringing people to salvation. God is sovereign over all things, over history and over time, and he's in control and always has been. But this concept of God's sovereign choice from beginning to end shouldn't ever prevent us from telling everybody we can about Jesus. It certainly didn't stop Paul and Timothy. And look at the global church. For Paul, there was this overwhelming joy, both when people became Christians and when people joined him in the ministry of preaching the gospel. We see this so clearly in the letter to the Philippians at right at the beginning in verses three to five, where he says to this beloved church, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. When you read that, you just see Paul's joy bubbling over. And it should be a great joy for us as Christians when somebody comes to faith. Because the joy we feel when that happens is straight from God's heart. Remember the words of Jesus that he says three times in Luke 15 about when somebody comes to faith in God and turns from their sin and turns to Jesus. He says this in Luke 15, 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, I shared with you uh, a little bit earlier about my AeroPress new way of making coffee and how I highly recommend it to you if you're a coffee person. Something else I recently recommended to a whole bunch of people, and I'm unashamedly admitting that lockdown has got me a little bit bored at times, 
something I recommended is a garlic press. Said if you get one of these, uh, you, it will revolutionize your cooking experience. And somebody messaged me the other day and they said, Andy, I've bought a garlic press and it has completely changed my cooking experience. Okay, don't judge me. But I was excited that this person had listened to me, followed my advice and used the thing that I recommended. I wonder what it is for you. What are you really passionate about that you highly recommend to everyone you meet? And it brings you great joy when you find out that somebody is following in your footsteps. Well, if we get excited when someone watches a TV show that we recommend or cooks a recipe that we suggested or tries out what we consider to be the best takeaway in town, how much more excited will we be when someone listens to us talk about Jesus, recommend following him and decides that they want to follow him too? Because this isn't just following in our footsteps. This is changing everything for that person. I wonder who you're thinking of, who you would love for them to have faith in Jesus and have their eternity transformed. Jesus says in John 5, 24, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. That person who you would love for them to come to know Jesus hasn't just done what we recommended. They've crossed over from death to eternal life. This is great cause for celebration. Part of the reward of following Jesus and telling people about him is knowing that others will get to share in the salvation Jesus has achieved for us by grace. And finally, what about that second aspect of the reward of following Jesus? Well, this is quite simply the reward of knowing Jesus. The incredible mind-blowing thing about this reward is it's something we could never, ever earn which means reward is a bit of a strange word for it. But the Bible uses it, so I'll use it. And the Bible also uses the words free gift and grace. Because God is so generous that he's willing through Jesus not only to forgive us for the wrong we've done and to give us a free gift of eternal life just for believing in Jesus, but he's also willing to reward us for the good we do in his name in eternity. But it is utterly by his undeserved grace that we can have this gift, this reward. Well, Paul finishes in verses 11 to 13 by saying, here is a trustworthy saying, which is Paul's way of saying, quote this. And he says this. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, but he cannot disown himself. The reward for anyone who follows Jesus is eternal life in God's kingdom. We are made co-heirs with Christ through faith. This position that we could never imagine climbing to. And even on those days where we feel faithless and weak, and we struggle to even imagine sharing our faith with others when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Praise God for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Well, you might be thinking, this is all great for Timothy. His job description was apostle, like Paul, or church leader, evangelist, maybe. Sharing Jesus with the world was literally his job. But you might be thinking, that's not my vocation. Actually, I've got quite different plans for my life. I believe that they're from God, actually. What about me? 
This passage, however, leads us to all reflect on our roles as Christians. It's true that most of us here, statistically, won't be church leaders or professional evangelists or lead Christian ministries, although some of us may well do. But it's equally true that every one of us will have golden, God-given opportunities to share the gospel in our lives. Whether it be with a homeless person that we meet outside Aldi, or our family member or friend or somebody we meet on the street, or the person we decide to invite along to Alpha this February. Something we might feel is really small or just an existing friendship. We will all have these golden opportunities to share the gospel. Paul calls us to consider the cost of following Jesus, to know what we're getting into and to take it seriously. As we share the gospel, we may have to sacrifice popularity with the masses. We might have to have some awkward conversations. We might be tempted to give up or cut corners instead of working hard. But we are called to consider the incredible reward of preaching the gospel as well, which far outweighs the cost. To know that God is transforming lives left, right and centre, and he might use our words to bring someone to faith in him, forgive them and welcome them into his kingdom. And at the centre of this passage and at the centre of our faith and at the centre of our effort to share Jesus with as many people as we can is this constant reminder for us. We read verses eight and nine one more time. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Let's remember that as we think about who we might be able to share the gospel with and what that might look like. Remember that even though some of us might feel chained right now, restricted on where we can go and what we can do, the word of God, the gospel is not changed. God is changing lives.